Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about how God will make all things new. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to be prayed for. Our church has a prayer team that consistently prays for people. Sometimes those people are in our church, sometimes they're not. But anyone who asks for prayer gets prayed for. I don't know who will hear this sermon, but I do know that it will be people all over the country and to some degree around the world. If I know one thing about people, it is that they have fears, failures, and struggles. In the midst of all that, I believe that God responds to our prayers. We may not get everything we want, but God does work all things for the good of those who love Him, specifically in response to prayer. So here's what I'm inviting you to do. Go to creekside.me and click on Get Prayer. It'll take you to a form, submit the form, and we will pray for you. Again, it's creekside.me. I hope you'll take me up on this offer. Again, thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you learn and live more fully for the glory of God. In fact, I'm praying that it will. All right, well, good morning, everybody. I am uh, used to speaking to people whose frontal lobe, the uh, prefrontal cortex being really important, hasn't yet fully developed. Uh, so middle school and high schoolers, in fact, uh, that frontal lobe, which is re- regulating uh, certain behaviors like organization, empathy, uh, and just basic reason, uh, it sometimes takes between ages 25 to 30 for men. So uh, I know Jerry and Jude, there's hope for you. Yeah, there is hope. Like You'll get there. <laughs> Brian, sorry, man, not for you. It's not there yet. It's not happening. Um, but, uh, working with kids, uh, you learn something, uh, really quickly because that's not yet fully developed. They'll tell you things, um, about yourself, uh, all the time, right? They'll come up to you and say, um, do you know that you look stupid when you do this? I'm like, I didn't know, but thank you. Uh, some of the, the mannerisms that I have, um, I am fully aware of them because of these kids. In fact, I know one of them I got from my father. Uh, when my dad stands in the kitchen, I realized that he, oh yeah, Julie's doing it in the back to remind me. Uh, one of them, I'll just tell you what she was doing is I like to put my hands on my chest and then go like this. <laughs> and it's apparently when I'm making a really profound point, which it kind of robs it. If, right, this is very distracting. But that's what I do. But my father, when he stands in the kitchen, uh, he'll be thinking about something. He'll kind of point and then go raptor. Then he'll think again and point, go raptor with this one. And just be standing there with two hands like this. And yeah, my mom's saying, that's true. Well, I know I do that now too. Because kids will say, why do you go like this? It's a weird way to stand. It is. It's a weird way to stand. They'll say, you know, do you know you blink funny sometimes? So I blink funny. I stand funny. I do weird things with my hands. Um, I say dumb things. I realized recently that when I'm really focused, kids can hand me things. And they'll do that. I'll be talking to somebody about something and I'm laser focused. And I realize by the end of it, I'm holding a stapler, a ruler, a roll of tape. And I just have all of these things in my hand. I'm like, why am I holding this? 
And then a girl's just standing there with a pile of things because she's just been handing them to me. And you just, you just grab them. When someone hands you something, you just grab it. So I'm, I'm messed up. I'm messed up. I'm, I'm broken. Everything's not right with me. And, and the reality is everything's not right with you either. You probably have things that you do, things that you think, things that you say sometimes. You're like, man, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't be that way. Or I can't wait till the time that I can actually pay attention to more than one thing at a time. See, the reality is, is that as much as uh, we fail, we are in a nation that will fail too. There have been historians know that at least of the known nations that no longer exist, there's approximately 300 nations that, whose history we know that no longer exist. And the, the statistical likelihood that you are in a nation that will fail is very high given history. Things will fail. And I want to talk about, uh, just to open this up, we're talking about Revelation, about uh, in Revelation 21, where we get something new. But I want to tell you about failure first. And I want to talk about a craze that was really popular. This will date me a little bit. It was really popular um, when I was growing up. It happened in uh, 1995. And in 1995, only 14% of the population here in the United States used the internet. It's kind of wild. And at that time, 10% of all eBay's sales were one item. Anyone want to take a guess? Beanie Babies, someone said it. These beautiful plush $5 toys you could get only at novelty shops, at at small, independently owned gift shops. And there were these uh, plush toys by Ty Warner called Beanie Babies. And if you collected Beanie Babies, um, well, they fell in value. But there were people who lost friends, people who invested fortunes, and it all happened because of this uh, one toy called Lovey the Lamb. Ty Warner didn't know what he was doing until uh, his manufacturer in China let him know, hey, by the way, we won't be able to manufacture Lovey the Lamb anymore. This very popular plush toy that was selling very well. And he thought, oh no, I'm going to have to tell people that it will no longer be available. But instead, he called the shops and he said, by the way, Lovey the Lamb is going to be discontinued. And in fact, I will continue to make certain ones discontinued. I will, quote, retire them. And this made people go wild. They said, you're going to retire certain Beanie Babies? We got to buy them now. We got we to gotta get it because these are collectibles. And if they're going to retire, we're going to buy them in wholesale. And on the tags there, uh, these, these little heart, were they heart tags? You'll remind me, yeah, they're heart tags. It said, come to our website, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. It brought a whole new crowd to the internet. In fact, historians now realize that one of the biggest boons to the internet was Beanie Babies. It brought more people to the internet than anything before. It is considered the first internet sensation. Because people wanted the news. When is the next Beanie Baby going to be retired? And when is a new one coming out? What are the hot 
collectibles. I read about a family that invested $100,000 of their kids' college tuition because they knew values were going up. But here is the reality. The scarcity was artificial. When the internet bubble crashed, the turn of the century, 1999, there was a lot of things happening, the Y2K scare, all of these things. People started to bring their beanie babies to the market, and they realized what they thought was really rare was, in fact, pretty widespread. And because there was so much supply and not enough demand, it crashed. It totally failed, and people sat there realizing there's been now several documentaries about the beanie baby craze, about people who lost friends who lost family and who lost fortune because they invested in the wrong thing. Looking back, I could tell you that stuffed animals are probably not the best investment. But they didn't know. They put their money in the wrong thing. And so we know, and we know, we do, we intellectually know that everything on earth here is temporary. Everything is temporary. The one thing on earth that is not temporary is you. It's you who are not temporary. And so the reality is, what are you investing? If you on earth are not temporary, there is something else that's not temporary, but it's not earthly. And so I want to talk about what ought to be your permanent address. And your permanent address is in heaven. And what's cool is that uh, this verse that we're going to be going over is that there's actually not much disagreement. Now, you've known, as Chad has been preaching, that there's a lot of different views in the book of Revelation. But here as we get to uh, Revelation 21, verse 9, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 27, basically everyone agrees that when it's talking about this new Jerusalem, it's not talking about, some would say, before this there's a millennial kingdom where Christ will rule for this a thousand years and there's some disagreement over that. Well, this is not it. This new Jerusalem is our permanent address. It is the reality of heaven where Christ makes all things new. It says, Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Everything goes away. But it says in Revelation 21.5, He who was seated on the throne, Jesus seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So what we're going to have here is something brand new that we as the bride of Christ, the church, get to participate in. So I want to read uh, Revelation 21.9 through 27. But before that, I want to tell you this story which I think is very interesting, is that this new Jerusalem, there's one book in the Bible that actually predicts this new Jerusalem. Now, when people talk about a different kingdom, they might see it in Ezekiel, but this Jerusalem, where, where Jesus is the center, he is the temple, and which all things are perfect, we see in the smallest book in the Bible. Some of you may not have even heard of this book in the Bible. 
I know that when I teach from it, kids don't understand even what this book is about because, uh, well, it's not one that's often read. Obadiah. Obadiah. It is 21 verses. And it is the smallest book in our whole Bible. It is called a minor prophet because it is small. It's in the Old Testament. And it tells the story of the fall of Israel to Babylon. But something happened. I won't have you raise your hand here, but I'm going to assume that many of you in this room sometimes have conflict with family. You maybe go to family reunions or you hang out with certain family members and you're like, if you weren't family, I would have nothing to do with you. Maybe you, you just don't get along. Maybe you're so different. Maybe something happened. Maybe there are people in your family that the, the, the conflict was so great that you try to, generally speaking, avoid them. Well, this actually happened in the Old Testament. We had the father of nations, Abraham, with his wife, uh, Sarah. We won't talk about Hagar. Something happened there. But Abraham with Sarah, and they have Isaac. Isaac gets married to Rebekah, and Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And they didn't get along. There was conflict the whole time because Esau, he was kind of a man's man. He'd go out, he would hunt, but apparently his prefrontal cortex wasn't fully developed because one day when he comes in, he's super famished and hungry, and uh, Jacob, who's kind of a mama's boy, he's, he's made soup, red soup, and he's like, mm, yeah, there's this red soup, and Esau's like, I am famished, give me some of that soup. And Jacob's like, fine, sell me your birthright. A birthright was big back then. Esau was born first. He inherits his father's kingdom. But Jacob says, for some lentil soup, I need your birthright. And Esau says, okay. Okay. So he takes the lentil soup, and Jacob claims for himself the birthright. Of course, he needs to get approval uh, from his father. So there's a whole lie there where Jacob dresses up as Esau, wearing some, some goat skin, basically, which is weird. Esau must have been really hairy. If you can put on goat skin and be like, that's my son Esau right there. My goodness, that's a wolverine. Okay, so this was a hairy man. Convinces his blind father that he's Esau, takes the birthright and the blessing, and Esau's really mad and they hate each other. And there's conflict this whole time. But what we see is that Jacob goes, becomes Israel and the founder of the Israelites, and Esau goes and becomes the leader of the Edomites. So there's the Israelites and the Edomites, and they don't like each other, but they're family. So there's this, this conflict where it's like, you know, we will we'll maybe kind of help each other now and again. We recognize that we're both family, so we'll go to life sort of together, but not like each other. Until one day, Babylon, the, the Babylon that it talks about in Revelation, it compares Rome to Babylon. Babylon conquers Israel. And the Edomites, who are family, usually would come and help, you would think. But instead, they went to the conquered Israel, and they went to this ransacked city, and they looted it. 
They took from it the spoils that were left and they went to its highest hill, Mount Zion, and they drank on that hill and rejoiced. For their family, the Israelites, had fallen and it made them happy. I know that sometimes we can feel that way when people who we think deserve it fall. We're like, yes, <laughs> you got what you deserve. Sometimes we do that when we see people who are like, finally, they had it coming. Well, this is what the Edomites did. They said, I am actually happy that you got crushed. And they went and they drank in the hill. And then refugees of Israel who were like, hey, bad thing happened. We, we're going to run to the Edomites. It's the last place we want to go. But we're going to go and ask you for help. And what do they do? They strike them down. So the Edomites now even kill their own family. So Obadiah just 21 verses, talks about what the Edomites had done to Israel and says, judgment is coming. You will be judged. But it's really strange. It talks about the Edomites. And then on ver at verse 15, it takes an entire change. It says, Edom is going to be judged. But then it says, in Obadiah 1, 15 through 16, I say Obadiah 1, there's only one chapter, but you got to do that. It says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. So first it was talking about Edom, and then it says, by the way, in fact, it's near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. Think about it. They're up on the hill. They're enjoying themselves. They're drinking and drinking and just saying, I'm getting everything I ever wanted. But there will come a time where it will be as if you have never been. I think it's easy for us to look out and we can see that nations are drinking and drinking and drinking. But it will be as if they have never been. This judgment is coming for all nations. But then it says at the end of Obadiah, those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom and the Lord himself will be king. So once all nations are judged after they drank and drank and will be as if they have never been, then we'll head back into Jerusalem and the Lord himself will be king. Here in Revelation 21, we are seeing just that. There will be a time when all nations end. That which is temporary will cease and go away, and that which is new will come. So we know that every nation will fall. We know that the Edomites drank on that holy hill. We know that, that our nations are doing the same thing. They are just going after everything that is temporary. And it actually says, in, uh, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if someone does not provide for his own family, or for his own, especially his own family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
Paul indicting those who would abandon their own family. Here we see that the Edomites have abandoned their own family. So this is what it says in Revelation 21, 9 through 10. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Here's what's interesting. It's this, the seven angels. It's the one who had the seven uh, bowls, the, set, the last bowl here. And if you remember from Revelation chapter 16, that last bowl was when all nations were judged finally and completely. So what do we see in Obadiah is the judgment of all nations, and then the Lord will be king. So this seventh angel is the one pouring down all of this judgment, and that is the angel that is now showing what is coming new, this new Jerusalem. And then it's the bride of the Lamb, which we are considered the, the bride of Christ. In fact, this bride imagery has been used all throughout the Old Testament as well. We see it in 2 Corinthians and we see it in Ephesians as well. Uh, the bride there uh, is Israel. We see it in Hosea, another minor prophet. That's where Hosea, who is going to be a prophet of God, gets probably really excited saying, yes, God's going to use me. What do you want me to do? And he's like, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. And Hosea is probably like, well, that is tragic. That's not exactly what I wanted. But he goes and he marries a prostitute with a beautiful name. If I had a daughter, I'd name her Gomer. Just kidding. It's a terrible name. But her name was Gomer, and she was a prostitute, and he marries her, and uh, lo and behold, she's unfaithful. She cheats on him all the time, and God says, pursue her, pursue her, pursue her. If you want to be my prophet, then you will also know how I feel that my bride continues to abandon me, abandon me, abandon me. Every time I go and I save them, they turn again to false gods. How does it feel, Hosea? And I bet it feels pretty tragic. And so here, this bride of Christ has lived a life that has been unfaithful, but through the working of Christ, he is trying to perfect us so as to present us in heaven in this moment. We'll see that here in uh, Ephesians 5 shortly. Uh, but this, this angel that poured judgment on Babylon and all nations, this is the one that reveals it. And uh, like I said earlier, it's, it's a, a nice verse because the only thing where there is disagreement in this passage is whether or not the Jerusalem that we see, this new Jerusalem, is what we're getting a literal image of the actual kingdom. Or is the language it using symbolic? And frankly, what we know is that God's kingdom come is going to come, and whether it looks like it does with all its jewels and pearls and all its land, we know that it's coming. And that all nations will fail. So what we need to be doing is putting our investment into where our permanent address is. And our permanent address is here in this new and coming kingdom. And let me submit to you this that the primary reason that all earthly kingdoms fail 
is what we're going to see in Revelation uh, 21, 11 through 21. And what it is is this. We treat here on earth as valuable that which is ordinary in heaven. We go after wealth. We go after land. And all of that is ordinary and easy in heaven. Let's look at it. It's Revelation 21, 11 through 21. It's shown with the glory of God. This is that new Jerusalem. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Some have suggested that this is not jasper as we know it, but maybe more like diamond because it's clear as crystal. So maybe that was the imagery uh, because there wasn't maybe a precise word for it at the time. But it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. So it's this square, as you'll see, and there are three gates on each side. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There is some disagreement here because we don't know what 12 apostles there were. We know, at least know 11 of them. But who was the 12? Because Judas was often considered in the 12th disciple. And then we had Matthias, who was chosen at the end. Was it Matthias, who was technically, I guess, the 13th disciple, the only one not chosen by Jesus, but chosen by the casting of lots that we see in the book of Acts? Was it that one? Was it the Apostle Paul, who no doubt was a, a huge force for Christianity, who wrote most of the books of our New Testament? Or was it Judas? Is there a foundation as a reminder of the role he played, however bad, the role he played in, in bringing about our salvation? So there is some disagreement as to what that foundation is. Uh, I think uh, arguments could be made for, for all of those, and I don't think that we'll know until we get there. And the angel who... Sorry, and the angel, this is verse 15, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. We're going to talk about what this means. And as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious emerald, a, a precious stone, sorry. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure and transparent as glass. So, here's what's interesting. All of this wealth all of this wealth, so, so common, 
in heaven. So there was a, uh, uh, a story that's often used when you talk about this, where a rich man asks if he can bring all his gold to heaven. He says, I just want to bring all of this wealth that I accumulated on earth. Can I bring it? And the angel says, yeah, bring it in. We could use some new pavement. It's like the streets are made of gold. The city's made of gold. The largest pearl in the world right now, it's called the Giga Pearl. And it's got this golden uh, octopus yeah, that's wrapped around it that they put. It's 60 pounds in 15 ounces. It's worth almost $200 million. Yeah, we're talking about city gates made out of a single pearl. In other, word, in other words, the things that you find as valuable, the things that nations have fought over for millennia, it's common. Not only that, the, the size of this city, if we take it, say, hey, this is the literal size of the city, it is... 1,380 miles on each side. That, if we take the continuous United States, the 48 states here, it's about 64% of just that in land size. But then the Bible says that it's also equal in height. And so if there were levels here, let's say about 70 thousand feet per level. You would have 102 levels here in heaven. This is back to what people have, have done. And 102 levels uh, would get you the entire uh, mass of the earth. But it, it would be 340% when you think, because most of the earth is, is bodies of water. So if just in terms of the actual size, because it says there will be no more seas, just this size at 102 levels, which is 70,000 feet per level, which is way, way higher than any commercial airline would ever uh, fly, which I think uh, Grant could tell us that. But if there were 102 levels, we have 340% the size of Earth. In fact, so it's basically three and a half Earth sizes in this kingdom. People have fought and died for land all of the time. And it's saying this kingdom is huge. Huge. When it says, in my father's house, there are many rooms, my goodness, you can have big, big room. You could have your own mansion. You could have so much. There is so much space in this kingdom and so much wealth in this kingdom. The things that people value on earth is ordinary and easy in heaven. And so the reality is, is that we need to be valuing the things that are actually important, the things that have long and lasting value. I want to tell you about somebody who saw the long and lasting value. This is the story I've told a few times uh, this week. But I was reading about the first full-time missionary in Korea. His name was Samuel Moffat, or just Sam Moffat as he went. And he arrived uh, in Korea after uh, one of their uh, early revolutions in uh, 1905. And when he got there, he saw that there was one small 
church. Now, he's the first full-time missionary there. There have been uh, people who went there but immediately died because they were called the hermit kingdom in Korea. They did not let any foreigners there. Any foreigner that went there would die. And so he was surprised to see that there was one small church there. And when he asked, how did this church get here? He was informed about a man named Robert Germain Thomas. Robert Germain Thomas was a man from Wales, so he was Welsh, and he married a woman named Caroline. And they went, once he was ordained, they were excited because he was naturally gifted in languages. He already knew French, Latin, and Greek, and they were excited about how he was going to serve the church in Wales, but then he goes and uh, he and his wife say, by the way, we're going to Asia. Specifically, we want to bring the word of God to the people of China. They're like, oh, man. And they say, no matter the sacrifice, we believe that the word of God is treasure and that people need to have it. What is most valuable to them was the treasure of the word of God. And so when they got to China, just four months into their missionary journey in China, Caroline, who has, uh, is now pregnant, miscarriages and hemorrhages from the miscarriage and died four months in. And Robert Germain Thomas, who went there to bring the word of God and who said with his wife, no matter the sacrifice, realized that this was too much. Four months in to lose his wife, so he quit. Instead, he goes and works for the customs office in China. And he's learning new languages. He learns Chinese, and he is able to help with all of the customs needs. And one day, two men come in, and they see that he has a cross on his neck. And they say, you are a Christian. We had Catholic priests, French ones, that came but our governor killed them immediately. And uh, one thing that they remembered about these priests is that they said the holy prayer and one of them was smiling as he was put to death when they tried to get there. So there were some Catholic priests that went and, and died immediately, French ones, but they remembered the cross. And they remembered that they talked about the treasure of the word of God. And so Robert, who heard this, he goes back and he says, well, I have this. And he hands him a Bible. It's in Chinese, but many of the Koreans could read Chinese. And they're like, whoa, this is the book that they were talking about. And so after uh, work, he went and he started talking with these Korean men because they were technically breaking the law by leaving Korea. But some things they could only find in China. And uh, he's talking with them, and after only a few hours, Robert was able to speak some full sentences in Korean. And they said, how is it that only after a few hours you can speak full sentences to us in Korean? And he said, well, it's a gift. And they said, a gift, like a gift from God. And that caused Robert to remember when he was there with his wife saying, no matter the sacrifice, we're going to bring the word of God to the people of Asia. And he says, you know what? Uh, I've got to go. And they say, what, where are you going? He's like, I'm going to pack my bags because I'm coming with you. And he said, you cannot come back to us 
<laughs> Koreans will not tolerate foreigners, you'll die. He's like, I've got an idea. So he puts on some traditional Korean garb and he goes into Korea for four months and they secretly hand out all of the Chinese Bibles that he has. And one day when he was there, uh, oh no, sorry, on the last day he was there, he had uh, his Bible, he was looking for the last person to give it to and he bumped into somebody and dropped the Bible. And a little boy goes and picks it up and is about to give it to him. And this boy hands it to him and he stops and he says, no, this is for you. And then he says, it is treasure. The interesting thing, this boy, his name is Chow. He saw those French priests die. And he remembered the smile. And he remembered that they talked about treasure. And so this young boy goes to his uncle and he says, uncle, uncle, remember those priests that talked about treasure? And his uncle said, that was made up, son. That's not a thing. They were just saying that because they were weird. And he says, then how is it that I hold that treasure now in my hand? And his uncle takes the book and he goes to the governor of this, of this uh, Korean kingdom and shows him it. And, he, and the governor takes it and says, who gave this to you? And he realizes that uh, a foreigner came in on a, on a dinghy and was spreading this, uh, these lies so he takes the book from the kid, and then he makes a new rule that if anyone even communicates with a foreigner, then they will be put to death. Robert Germain Thomas wanted to go back to Korea, but he was hearing that it was too unsafe. And then someone came up to him, an American by the name of Captain Page. And Captain Page knew him from the customs office. He said, look, I want you to, I want you to come with me. I want to set up a, a trading outpost with the Koreans. Robert didn't realize that what Captain Page was trying to do was illegal. But he said, I'll help translate if I can bring an entire crate of Bibles to distribute. He said, sure, absolutely. We're, we're going to peacefully negotiate. The moment that ship got there, the Koreans were on high alert. And they said, we don't want you here. You need to leave. And what can happen is that when, when some men have their pride hurt. They do stupid and impulsive things. And so he took the captain of the guard hostage. Captain Page did. And he said, we want to set up a trade route or else. Like, that's not a way of getting what you want. And so the Koreans started to attack the ship. In response, they shot cannons at the civilians on the shore. And eventually, they set the ship on fire, and Robert Jermaine Thomas is frantic. So while the, the ship is on fire, he runs back and forth, throwing gospel tracts over and yelling, this is the word of God. It is treasure. It is treasure. And he's throwing it while the ship's on fire, and he jumps off the ship with his last Bible, and he gets to shore where every single person who is getting off that ship is being killed by the civilians there. And as the uncle of Chow, that boy, comes and sees him there, Robert Germain Thomas says, perhaps I have failed. But this is the reason I have left my country. This is the reason my wife has lost her life. And this is the reason I'm willing to lose mine now. Take it. It is treasure. 
and his uncle kills him. And, take, and the boy takes that Bible. But the governor comes and takes it from him. And the boy, as he's walking away with his uncle who had just killed Robert Germain Thomas, he says, twice I have had it, and twice I have lost it. And the uncle says, if this man is right, and it is the word of God, then God will find a way of bringing it back to us. Several years later, after the revolution, Chow realized that the governor of that area, who was no longer there, used the Bible as wallpaper for his home. And Chow bought it and was able to read the Word of God on the walls of the home there and became a Christian. And when Samuel Moffat went to that church, all the people that remem- all the people remembered was the man who threw Bibles off the ship yelling, this is treasure, this is the Word of God. All it took was a boy to see a priest and a Protestant willing to die for something they saw as treasure to see that's what real value is. The lesson being fighting for your heavenly home is demonstrated in your willingness to give up your earthly one. I think now more than ever, we need to realize that if we really think heaven is worth it, then we must realize that earth is temporary. If we're not willing to give up our earthly home, then we're not seeing our heavenly one is worth it. And I see that in churches all around the United States, that we have people who get caught up in living for their earthly home, myself included, and we forget the importance and permanence of our heavenly one. Sometimes I use this analogy And the reality is, in in the book of Revelation, we see that the lake of fire is real. And the analogy is this, that if we are walking to a door, and we know that behind this door is perfect, perfect life. No more weeping and gnashing of teeth. No more suffering. No more anguish. No more tears. And then we see another person lining up behind a door that we know only leads to hopelessness. That behind this door is anguish for eternity. Do we go, man, that's rough. And we walk into our door, like, ooh, that's no good for them. Or do we say, no, stop. Don't open that door. Don't do it. That's not good for you. Here's the problem. When we do that for people, it can be embarrassing for us. It can cost us. It can cost us all kinds of things in this life. If we are vocal about the destination of people who are living in sin, people will say, look at those Christians. Look how pathetic they are. The funny thing is, is that we can look at the martyrs of old who are willing to lose our lives, and sometimes we are unwilling to lose our comfort. We're unwilling to be embarrassed because we think the cost is too great. 
I think if we're going to live as Christians, sometimes we need to have tough conversations, even with our family members. Those who do not know Christ, are we willing to invest in them? Because what is most valuable is in heaven. And we can see that some people are treating as valuable the things of earth, and it will cost them everything. Something like this happened to the prodigal son. If you remember, it says in Luke chapter 15, it talks about the prodigal son, somebody who told his father, you know what, I want to take my inheritance now and leave. And he goes and he spends it on all the luxuries of the world. And he thought it would make him happy. He spent all of his money and then it went away and he had nothing and life was miserable. He went and worked on a farm and was eating with the pigs. And as he's doing that, he has an epiphany. And it says this in verse 17. When the son came to his senses, he said, back home, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For, his son of my, for the son of mine is, was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. When the son, the prodigal son, realized the bad news, that he had sinned against his father, against heaven. When he realized his own corruption and carelessness, he ran to his father and his father forgave him. We have a world living in sin. We have people who don't know the good news, and by and large, they don't know their need for it because they don't know the bad news. That they're living in sin and that the things of earth are temporary, that nothing here will satisfy. And when they come to their senses, they run to the Father. I think we as Christians need to be in the business of helping people come to their senses. The last point I want to make is that the heavenly kingdom never fails. I'll be quick, I promise says this in Revelation 21, 22 through 27. I did not see a temple in the city. So this temple, this new, this, I'm sorry, this new Jerusalem won't have a temple. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it, 
Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. So for most of history, the temple was a place that was used to mitigate God's glory. God's glory was mitigated because it could not be coupled with sin. And so now in sinless perfection in heaven, we see the Lord God face to face and he is our temple. I think it will be so cool to be in a place where we no longer deal with the foils and baubles or whatever that word is of sin. See, sin corrupts our every being. It, 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 it gives us thoughts we don't want to have. It, it gives us impulses we don't want to have. But in heaven, where the glory of God is perfect, and we see it, God is our temple. And the, the thing is, is that we th- when we think about closed gates, the reason you close a gate is because you're afraid of what's outside it. And so this image of open gates always is because you have nothing ever to fear. The gates are always open. So in other words, these walls are not to protect from what's outside. They're there only to show and demonstrate the glory of God alone. The gates are open. Now I get... Uh, I'm going to read from Ephesians 5 where it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Here in the New Jerusalem, the bride of Christ is presented as holy and without blemish so that we can see Christ face to face. Now I get, frankly, a little scared. As a teacher, as an educator of of these young kids, I see that the world is getting harder and harder to live in. I see that now more than ever, The morality of the world is set against the morality that God has set forth for us in the Bible. And it's getting increasingly more difficult to stand up for the truths of what the Bible has said. And the reality is that if we do not see our permanent address as worth the cost of our earthly embarrassment, this life will be tragically difficult. And we will see our sons and our daughters fail if we do not accurately communicate to them how worthy our permanent address is. And God knows I'm trying to teach these kids that come into my my classroom about how worth it is. But I'm scared. I am. And I can't wait to get to heaven where I will no longer be just that where I can see Jesus face to face. And this sinful body, this sinful nature is gone. I want it. I long for it. 
And I want to communicate that to the children who are there. Truth is, it is getting difficult. But we must, 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 must teach with our very lives how heaven is worth it. Which means we must be demonstrating that we're willing to give up the things of this earth. What are we willing to give up for the sake of our permanent address? I hope that today you will reflect on that. What can you give up for the sake of heaven? And I hope, I hope that you would be willing to give up everything. Let me pray that in your life. Lord, I am so imperfect, but I cannot wait to live with you in what is perfect. Lord, we cannot want heaven for our children, but we can show them how much we want it with our lives and the way that we live. God, I pray that we would be willing and able to give up the things we see as luxury on this earth for the sake of your kingdom. God, I thank you so much that you are big and awesome and powerful. God, that you can perfect us and you will. I pray that we would long for this permanent address. I pray that we would live for it. God, I pray that we would be willing like Robert Germain Thomas, to say, this is the reason I am willing to give up everything. Because we see the things of heaven as true treasure. God, you are all that is worth it. And I pray that we would be willing to live for that which is worth it. We thank you for allowing us to preach openly. We thank you for the freedoms we now have, God, and I pray that we would be faithful when we no longer have them. God, when our children go through things that are terrible and hard, God, I pray that your kingdom would come soon, that you would deliver us, that when these nations fall, God, we would stand as your church, as the bride of Christ, and we love you and thank you for your rich blessing. In your precious name, Amen.